0: What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices, Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM, the Pacifica Network, and online at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Sabrina Louise. Sabrina is an educator of vegan cuisine. She's a food and water activist and works for the Unitarian Universalist Ministry for Earth. Sabrina is based in Portland, Oregon, and is one of the founding members of Rethinking Psychiatry. Today, we're going to be talking about sane vegan transition. So thank you for joining me on Madness Radio, Sabrina Louise.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So you and I have known each other for a long time through your work for mental health system reform in Portland, Oregon, through the group Rethinking Psychiatry, and we recently um, saw each other at an event, actually, um, Ecstatic Dance in Portland. I was visiting up in Portland, and we had a great conversation about veganism and about a whole foods, plant-based diet, and I thought you had a lot of really interesting insights and ideas and experience from your work as an educator of vegan cuisine, talking with the difficulties of transitioning to a whole food, plant-based diet and veganism, and what might come up for people while they're considering making this change. So it's great to have you. Uh, great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's it's a great opportunity to be here with you today. Will I, I'm really passionate about food and water and how it affects our bodies and our minds and the planet. Um, lots to talk about. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Now I should start out by saying that, you know, even though right now I am working myself on a transition to a whole food plant-based diet or a vegan diet, I'm not an advocate for veganism. I'm an advocate for people eating the food that works for them. And a lot of times people come to me and they say, Hey, Will, what diet should I, should I be on? Should I to heal my um, experiences that called psychosis or to support me relying less on medications. And people will ask me, what's the best nutrition? And my response is always, look, you need to trust your body and work with your own experience and find out what works best for you. So this is definitely not an advocacy for everyone should be on a vegan diet. What I have seen, however, is that there's a lot of people out there who are interested in uh, veganism. It's a it's a huge and growing um, uh, choice for a lot of people, and what i 've seen is that um often when people go into some kind of visionary state that might have been called psychosis or might have been called uh mania, um they go into these visionary states, and i've been in visionary states where I felt like hey i don't want to be eating animal foods i don 't want to be killing animals i don 't want to be doing the diet that I had in the past, I want to go with a vegan diet, I want to go with the highest kind of uh, vision that I've had for what my health could be. But then when people try and put that into practice, they get into trouble. And this is what's really interesting for me about having you on, on the show, uh, Sabrina, because I think you have a lot of insight. And you can give us a lot of practical information about how to make the transition sane and safe and do it in a way that works for you. So we're going to be talking specifically about this question of, of transitioning and how to do it in a safe and smart way. So I want to start out, Sabrina, with asking you, why is it that your your interest in food and nutrition got you involved with this mental health reform group? Why were you involved in founding Rethinking Psychiatry, which has done great work in Portland, Oregon, and, and the whole region? Why is it that that was connected with food for you?
1: Aside from my own uh, journey of discovering a, a whole foods plant-based diet, and in terms of really um, helping to support my physical health and well-being, uh, I, I picked up a book called Food and Behavior by Barbara Stitz. And as, as a probation officer in Orange County, California, she really blew my mind wide open about how deeply our food choices can affect our behavior in terms of stabilizing blood sugar, um, in terms of our metabolism, in terms of of having literally psychotic breaks from too much casein, which is the primary protein in dairy, too much sugar, uh, uh, lack or deficiency in certain vitamins, et cetera, et cetera. And it really got me to thinking, um, I've, I've always kind of been opposed to uh, psychotropic or um, antidepressive, not to say that those things don't work for some people and not to say that they should be Eliminated altogether in all circumstances, but I, I'm really a fan of if, if I can make small gradual changes In my own life in what I consume and put into my body and build my cells with uh, If I can make every bite count nutritionally um, I I only see benefit from that. I only see improvement maybe not 100 percent reversal of certain things but certainly, I have, I have seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it myself. And I really felt that the mental health reform and community in and, and Oregon and in the world could really benefit from uh, a healthier, more nutrient-dense plant-based diet.
0: Yeah, and there are a number of studies that have been done. For example, people with a schizophrenia diagnosis, there have been some studies that show that they often have a higher rate of gluten sensitivity or um, gluten allergy And that's true of my experience. I I wouldn't say that everybody who has that diagnosis should get off gluten, but I, I tried, I experimented, and I found that, wow, when I stop eating gluten, I just feel better, I'm sleeping better, I have less anxiety. And sleep and anxiety would be a snowball effect for me to spiral right into crisis. So anything I can do to help my sleep and help my anxiety is going to help prevent me going into crisis. And I also found that you know refined sugar would throw me into these emotional roller coasters. coasters. And a lot of my depression and my anxiety, again, which would lead into that spiral down, was really benefited from avoiding refined sugar. And so there's a lot of research out there that really makes these connections between the food that we eat and then our moods and then the mental health system just has not been looking at this as a possible pathway for recovery for people.
1: I think one thing that's important to note too, about the gluten topic is that anytime we remove something that we are often eating, you know, uh, six to 10 servings a day. Uh, and many of those things, waffles, pancakes, cereal, uh, sandwiches, uh, pie, cake, pasta, garlic bread, those things, pizza, they also accompany sauces and syrups and things that have sugar as well as dairy, uh, which has casein in it. And so by eliminating gluten, we're also eliminating a lot of those things that we're also eating six to 10 times a day and uh, reducing that amount of inflammatory consumption can make a huge difference.
0: So the sugar and casein add to inflammation in the body? Is that part of the the question about them?
1: Yes. Gluten, sugar, and casein are all uh, not anti-inflammatory. So if you are trying to reduce the amount of inflammation in your body, whether it's uh, physical in your joints, uh, whether it's arthritis in your hands, whether it's uh, mental health, whether it's um, eczema, psoriasis, chronic dermatitis, other ways that our bodies become inflamed through the skin. Uh, there's a lot of uh, inflammatory responses that are directly linked to uh, inflammatory foods.
0: And inflammation also affects mood and uh, consciousness and, and how you're thinking and cognition is?
1: Absolutely, because you're irritated.
0: <laughs> mm, so it can add to anxiety and agitation and stress. Exactly. So we you know the processed food is also part of it, and the refined sugar, what are some of the things that we know about the connections between that and behavior and and mood and possible diagnosis of mental illness?
1: Just that when we have less inflammatory response in our bodies, we can be calmer and more grounded and perhaps able to deal with stress uh, more effectively. Um, and and also because we are calmer and have less inflammatory, we're able to process the nutrient dense food we are eating in a way that would then help those nutrients uh, regenerate cell growth and be be healthy in, in mind and body.
0: So inflammation and also depression. Depression is also really connected to eating lots of refined sugar or processed foods or white rice or white bread that converts quickly into sugar in the body and spikes our blood sugar, right?
1: Yes, these are, these are simple carbohydrates and they are delicious and they are addictive and they don't do a body good. Um, same thing with alcohol. Um, same thing with uh, juices, which is straight sugar and no fiber. Um, alcohol and juices and these simple carbohydrates have very little fiber. So they move through the long and herbivorous bumpy digestive tract with zero fiber to separate the sugars from the wall of the the GI system. So they're absorbed very quickly and that can uh, tax the pancreas, spike the insulin, and give us sugar highs and lows. And as we learn with any depressant uh, that might initially get us high, eventually at some point there's there's a crash. Uh, Certainly we see that with sugar and we also see that with alcohol.
0: One of the things I learned recently is there's something about cheese, about cow cheese that is directly addictive to brain chemistry. Is that, is that right? What, do you, what can you tell us about that? Because that really surprised me, but it related to my own cravings around, uh, around wanting cheese so much.
1: Yes, um, absolutely. Dairy, uh, whether it comes from a cow or a goat or a sheep, uh, this is um, baby mammal growth food. And it is designed to make a small calf or small mammal grow from, you know, uh, 60 pounds, if we're talking a calf, to, you know, 300 to 500 pounds as a full grown cow in the shortest amount of time possible. And the way nature has done this is the primary protein in that milk is casein, and casomorphines are opioid like substances that cross the blood brain barrier in a calf and and is addictive. And it lures that calf uh, when it's free range in a pasture or if it's in a factory farm, obviously not, not so much, but it lures in nature back to mom cow to drink more milk and eventually get weaned and, and start eating grass. But what we do is we remove the whey, we concentrate it, we stuff it in the crust of the pizza, we put it all over the pizza, we eat a piece of string cheese, and then we want another one and another one, because it's really affecting the same part of our brain as other addictive substances sugar, cocaine, uh, casein, dairy, cheese it's all right up there with it. And when you combine that with sugar or salt and ice cream or in cheese, uh, that's sort of a double whammy because we like the salty and we like the sugar.
0: So if you are craving cheese, you might actually be ha- be having a withdrawal effect for an actual addictive relationship that you neurochemically have with the substance that mimics um, opium or heroin in some ways in your brain. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and in fact, that's the number one reason a lot of people will just say straight up, I, I, would, I could be vegan, but I can't give up cheese, which is really funny because they could you know, still – incorporate certainly lots of plants into their diet, aside from cheese. Uh, but cheese is just a tough one because it's uh, not just harmful to the body, but it, you know, it's like you haven't been weaned since you were a baby, only instead of still drinking your mama's milk, you're drinking a cow's milk instead.
0: And so the, just like any addictive substance, if you go through a withdrawal process with the cheese, you'll start craving it less and then it won't be as appealing to you.
1: Yes, there's definitely life after cheese. Okay. And in, in, in this day and age, um, uh, I think Colleen Patrick-Goudreau, uh, a fellow uh, friend and vegan educator and author, has a podcast that is only about life after cheese uh, because there's so many good plant-based cheeses out there now that uh, there just really isn't any reason to, to consume the dairy version.
0: And are there other reasons cheese is addictive?
1: Yes, I would say that um one reason that most people don't consider or think about uh is the umami part of cheese in the sense that cheese in many cases is cultured, it's aged over time, and anytime we have organic matter that is in a state of decomposition, it's releasing something called l glutamate or or glutamate, which is different than gluten um but it is Uh, observed and uh, experienced physically in our body by a part of our tongue that addresses the umami taste, which is the fifth taste that we have on our tongue. And because people crave umami um, and they don't necessarily recognize the sources that they're getting umami from, uh, they maybe don't realize that not only are they physically addictive to cheese, but they're, they're also craving the umami that they certainly can get from plant-based cheeses or other uh, sources.
0: So this is really important for a sane transition because often people will move in the direction of a vegan diet and they'll just won't feel satisfied. They'll be like, oh, I just really want that. then, Then it becomes, I need it. I must have this. And what you're saying is there actually is a taste called umami, which we don't actually usually know much about, but it's a craving that we can have for this taste. And that once you understand that, okay, oh, what I want is the umami, then you can think about, okay, how do I transition to getting umami not from animal sources, but from other sources like fried onions is an example of of umami or sun-dried tomatoes is another example, very delicious source of umami.
1: Yes, actually any kind of tomato, uh, once a tomato actually leaves its plant host, uh, it's in a constant state of decomposition. And so when we eat tomatoes or cook them and break them down into tomato sauce or uh, sun dry them, the sun dried tomatoes or the tomato paste, uh, tomato paste is exceptionally high in umami. There's actually an umami meter or um, counter, if you will, I believe online somewhere you can just Google umami counter. Uh, that will actually tell you what types of foods are high in umami. And that can help you incorporate a little bit of umami into your diet uh, as you're transitioning.
0: So if you're transitioning to veganism and you don't want to go for the, the bacon or the melted cheese sandwich, what are some other umami sources that you might go for instead?
1: Uh, you might go for miso. Uh, and and use that as a, a flavoring agent in soups and stews, um, uh, nutritional yeast, uh, cultured vegetables, kimchi, sauerkraut, um, any kind of fungus.
0: You're making me hungry there. This sounds, del- <laughs> sounds any delicious. Any kind
1: of fungus, uh, any kind of mushroom. Basically, mushrooms are in a constant state of decomposition. Yeah. Fried, Um,
0: fried portobello mushroom sandwich. That sounds pretty good.
1: There you go. Uh, tempeh is also a cultured product. So it's also in the constant state of decomposition, but there are other vegetables too, that have a fair amount of umami in them. Maybe not as high as some of the others that I mentioned, but certainly Mm -hmm. potatoes, uh, carrots, Mm -hmm. um, various different vegetables that have some umami. So as long as you're kind of incorporating that into all of your foods, um, you can certainly get enough.
0: Because we certainly don't want to be hungry all the time. We want to be satisfied. Exactly. so I think that's that's one of the things that happens to people. They start, they sometimes do a crash course. They just dive right in and they don't feel satisfied. Then they think, okay, I, I must satisfy it with animal foods. Whereas actually, if we're smarter about a transition we don't starve ourselves but if we discover why we crave and desire and want certain things then we can perhaps continue with the transition we're gonna be talking a little bit more about that with some of the problem-solving but I wanted to continue to talk about you know why people might be considering a transition to veganism and there's a whole second domain which is about ethics that there are ethical reasons Um, the effects of course that eating animals and the animal industry has on animal suffering and then also um, the other ethical considerations. So tell us a little bit about that reasoning for becoming a vegan.
1: Well, it, it's interesting because there's a lot of cross-sectionality uh, um, when we think about injustices and oppression and marginalized people, uh, when we think about racism and sexism and classism, when we think about consent culture. And, you know, we categorize that certain species or certain animals are ethically um, justified in receiving um, industry standard uh, body modifications without anesthesia, Um, things that if we did to a dog or a cat, uh, we could likely be thrown in jail. Um, But for whatever reason, a a pig, which is a super intelligent, um, sentient being uh, we can do horrific things to pigs and and it's industry standard. Even the happiest, quote unquote, happiest pigs on the happiest farms or the happiest hens in the happiest barns uh, still have to go through industry, industry standard uh, body modification. Um, so, and then there's the ethical uh, part of um, biodiversity. Uh, when we're talking about other animals that are considered wildlife, and the encroachment of domesticated animals that we breed into existence. Um, You know, the rights are with the owners of land, with the cattle ranchers, uh, and not with the wolves and the cougars and the bears and the wild mustangs that encroach on the grasslands that cattle ranchers want for uh, their cattle or for their um, other game or, or animals. So um, there's, you know, there's that ethical distinction. There's also uh, the, the ethical distinction of uh, the people that we are paying to do violence onto animals every day. Um, and those people talk about mental health problems,
0: you're talking about the workers in factory farms. The
1: workers in factory farms and slaughterhouses, um, the people who are working on, on ranches and having to perform those, those body modifications without anesthesia. Um, you know, these animals are truly suffering and they are crying out in pain. And at some point, you have to desensitize and almost separate your, your intuitive heart and compassion. In order to do this work. And many of these people are uh, people in marginalized communities, uh, people who live in poverty. Um, environmental racism is, is another part of the equation. Uh, many of these people are immigrants, uh, un- undocumented workers, people who live together in, in families um, where they're, every day they go to work and they're risking their lives, their physical well being, their mental well being but also um, threats of of, uh, deportation um, because uh, it's difficult to systematically kill animals at the rate in which our demand for those products uh, is required. And so people who work in slaughterhouses, people who work in those industries, um, often get very few breaks. They're on their feet for long hours at a time. Um, it's physically and, and emotionally and mentally taxing work, and uh, there's there's threats of of sexual assault and sexual violence as well. By uh, this is documented. You can go to foodispower.org. The Food Empowerment Project has a lot of statistics on um, on these workers and and who is actually doing this work for uh, individuals choosing to support this these industries. So this is an
0: so the ethical position is about the rights of the animals to not suffer and be controlled in the way that they are and also the rights of the workers in these industries. It's affecting their well-being and also their their mental health.
1: Yes, yes, as well as uh, in terms of population being fed and the amount of, uh, and this sort of goes a little bit creeping into the the environmental reasons for doing this, but uh, ethically, if you feel uh, strongly that that fresh clean food and water should be accessible to all people of the world. Uh, But, but the the vast majority of the food and the water that we have available and accessible is actually going to animals that are intentionally bred into existence and then killed to produce a very small amount of food for uh, typically more, more um, privileged Uh, people in the world. Um, That's kind of a problem if you've got all these other people who are uh, perfectly fine eating a plant-based diet, but are unable to have access to uh, safe food and fresh water, uh, clean water, um, unpolluted water. Uh, So that kind of creeps into the environmental um, racism part of it.
0: Well, this this is something we don't hear about that much, that there's also a very strong environmental uh, reason for moving away from animal-based food and animal-based agriculture. So give us kind of a picture of what are the environmental concerns, because uh, I know this is also part of your work. What are the environmental concerns with eating animals?
1: So um, there's you know air pollution, uh, fecal matter in the air from hog farms, Um Blowing over to neighboring towns covering cars with fecal matter covering those cars with flies Uh, Groundwater contamination like all the fecal matter that is produced by factory farms and also uh, Happy pasture raised farms uh, that fecal matter has to go somewhere. So uh, When it's in lagoons and those lagoons are are full uh, They use sprinkler systems to sprinkler system out the um the fecal matter and the urine out into fields. Um, so then it runs off into streams and rivers. Groundwater contamination um, can cause uh, toxicity in people's bodies drinking from their wells. Um that also kind of leaches out into the wider water systems and uh is uh, contributes to uh toxic zones in, in the ocean. In the Gulf of Mexico, uh, algae blooms, deforestation.
0: Yeah, cattle pl- land for cattle ranching is drives has been driving destruction of tropical rainforests for decades and decades. It's like the single biggest reason for tropical forest destruction, right?
1: Yes, and um, also for uh, environmental activists being killed, uh, primarily down in South America, um, and also. I would mention soy production because other people will mention soy production, but that soy production is primarily as, as livestock feed. Uh, it is not the kind of soy production that is going to feed human animals. Uh, it's, it's different than buying some wild wood sprouted tofu. <laughs> so, the,
0: so the environmental impact is both from the animal production and also the food that's grown to feed the animals.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And the other thing is that there's a big connection between animal agriculture and the um, climate change issue
1: yes, yes, between the the carbon and the methane that the cows produce uh, it's 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 astronomical it's it's more than all transportation combined because there's just that many animals that we're breeding into existence, and all of the fossil fuels that are directly connected to the uh, growth, um, slaughter, processing, packaging, transportation, delivery. Pa- uh, did I say packaging already? Yeah. It's it's uh, there's an amazing uh, documentary called Cowspiracy uh, that really goes into depth over the environmental consequences of animal agriculture.
0: Yeah, because when when we hear about climate change and responding to climate change, the message that we get is transitioning to renewable forms of energy and getting off of fossil fuels but actually that's only half of the picture or even less than half because animal agriculture is the second biggest or the biggest contributor to climate change
1: it would make a huge difference if we just all shifted even gradually and incorporated more plants into our diet and reduced the demand for animal agriculture it would make a significant change. Um, it doesn't have to be one hundred percent. Certainly, for many reasons, as I've mentioned, it would be great if as many people who could have access to uh, transitioning to veganism that'd be fantastic. But really, it's something that we can control. It puts the control uh, the the wheel in our hands to be able to um, do that for ourselves and and for our mental health and our physical well-being and all the other reasons. Well,
0: that's a really good point because I think one of the keys for me in a successful transition is to really get away from the either or thinking. And people have heard me say this a lot in my work around medications and psychotropic substances and a harm reduction approach is that instead of seeing it either or, what about just reducing the a number of animal products that you've got? in your diet. And people kind of think that they're on this, this one side or the other of a fence, but actually you're making a huge impact if you can just reduce. And that was one of the things that helped me was being flexible and forgiving. You know, now I, I need to eat some fish, you know, okay, I'll, I really need a lamb burger. I want to eat some eggs. Like I've cheese is going to work for me this week. I mean, being in a transition zone, I think can make it seem less um, oppressive and severe and ascetic for people. So let's, let's talk about this transition and how to how to address some of the things. The first thing that I think that comes up for people is that, okay, I'm eating, I'm not eating meat, I'm not eating animal products, and I feel weak. What would you say to that?
1: Um, I would question how many calories they're consuming I would question uh, whether or not they're uh, consuming complex carbohydrates because that's where we get our energy from.
0: Let's start with the calories thing because I think this is a trap that I got into. If you are eating animal products, then you can get a certain amount of calories from a certain volume of food. If you go to to plant products, you need larger volume of food. So if you just stop eating animal products, but you're eating the same amount of food, as plant products, you're probably reducing your calories. And ironically, if you reduce your calorie input, you might feel better for a few days because, you know, constricting your calories actually can give you some energy. But long term, it's a recipe for disaster because you don't have the energy that you need. So the problem that people might be experiencing with weakness isn't with the vegan food versus the animal food. It's actually the number of calories that they're getting.
1: I would also say that, uh, it's quality versus quantity. So, um, not, not all plant-based food is created equal. I mean, you, you can be, obviously you can eat a plant-based diet and not be very healthy because you could eat Pringles and Twizzlers and, and, and that's not I think it's one not, of the
0: reasons why people are preferring whole foods plant based diet to veganism because veganism just means not eating animal products so you could eat junk food all day
1: actually veganism is a lot more than that well, and, yeah and that was yeah. one distinguishing factor I think that if if you are choosing to wear the identity of vegan, then you are accepting and uh, and following the notion that you're doing it for health, environmental, and ethical reasons. And I would say that uh, an idea that veganism is a trend is is less accurate than I would say that a plant-based diet is a trend. Uh, Because once you go vegan and once you wake up to the suffering that animals and people have to endure based on animal agriculture, it's very easy for you to decide that that's not something that you want to actually contribute to once you actually make that decision and it's hard to go back it's hard to go back to doing it even once in a while because it's so in your face that, that that's when you you end up kind of wearing that or identifying self-identifying as vegan but a plant based diet is something that anyone can try on try for a while see if it works for them uh, be flexible with, you can say, I, I I eat primarily a plant-based diet, or you can, you know, explore other uh, types of, of diets, pescatarian, which certainly is, is not vegetarian and it's not vegan. It is pescatarian. I eat fish and lots of vegetables. Fantastic. Um, you're help, you're helping the world and yourself by, by doing that. Um, and certainly not every diet is going to work for people but i i do think that the the way that environmentally where we're going and population wise
0: so if someone is is making a transition and they're feeling weak then it might be a, a matter of looking at the calories that they're taking are they are they getting enough calories or did they suddenly reduce their calories inadvertently because they weren't careful enough with their diet what are some other reasons that people might be feeling weak on a vegan or plant-based diet?
1: Um, it's, it's really the complex carbohydrates. I think, especially right now, it's very trendy to give up all carbs or to think that all carbs are evil. Um, and that isn't true. Simple carbohydrates are uh, not even evil per se, but they should be consumed in moderation for sure.
0: And so you mean like refined, like white rice and refined bread? White
1: and, rice and pasta and bread and all those delicious things, pretzels and potato chips. Um, certainly, you know, those come, come with other issues, but um, complex carbohydrates, sweet potatoes, um, you know, different various types of yams, lentils, beans, legumes. Brown, brown rice um, or... Brown rice, amaranth, buckwheat, millet polenta, blue corn, I would say blue corn over white or yellow, because that's something Monsanto hasn't gotten their hands on yet. Plus, it's really good to eat by color, to incorporate as much color, natural color in your foods as possible. So
0: so, so if someone is feeling weak in their transition, they shouldn't just tough it out, or they should really maybe look at... Um, the amount of calories that they're taking—that maybe they're they inadvertently reduce their calories because they didn't increase the volume of the food that they're eating—and then also the quality that maybe they should look at complex carbohydrates rather than sticking with the more refined carbo- carbohydrates. You also you also mention legumes, so eating your soybeans or black beans or pinto beans or aduki beans or lentils and these kinds of things can really be good for giving us energy which i think brings us to the question that a lot of people have because they they sort of say well wait a second what about protein where are you getting your protein and we hear that a lot and what would you what would you say to that
1: protein is in everything everything that comes from the ground that grows that is organic matter has some amount of protein it's true that some things have more protein than other things Uh, in terms of the amount of protein that would be found in broccoli, for example, or quinoa, or um, beans and legumes, uh, certain grains, they have higher protein than fruits and and some vegetables. But generally speaking, if you eat a well-balanced, broad, diverse, colorful diet of nuts and seeds and vegetables and fruits and beans and legumes and grains, you will get as much protein as you need. And if you are someone who is training or running marathons or biking or bodybuilding, then there are different types of protein that you can add to your diet. Pea protein is definitely winning uh, the hearts and bodies over in the weightlifting world. Uh, But the average American does not, in fact, no American, as far as I know, has quashi or a core. We've never heard of kwashiorkor. There is no kwashiorkor clinics. There are no specialty uh, wings at the hospital for kwashiorkor because kwashiorkor, which is the with which is the disease of protein deficiency, does not exist in the Western world. It does not exist in the United States. So even if you were eating the worst plant-based foods diet ever, like like I said, Pringles and twizzlers is the combo that comes to mind. I love both those things, but I don't eat them very often. Uh, but if you only ate Pringles and twizzlers, I feel you still get enough protein. You'd probably have some problems. but uh,
0: okay, okay. But, but, here's, but, but but what about this? Because what I noticed was that um, I would eat some salmon jerky or I would eat a hamburger, um, and I would feel so satisfied. And one of the things I learned is that maybe there's something I need to learn about the density of the food because the foods that we think of as high protein are also really super, super dense. And so most plant-based foods aren't so super dense. And so maybe some of that satisfaction comes from eating dense foods.
1: Well, the, the thing that their salmon jerky and the hamburger have in common um, is they're fat. It's fat and protein. And we know that fat and protein fill us up, but so does fiber. And our body's digestive tracts are long and bumpy and herbivorous. They are intended for fiber and water and nutrients. And and if our food contains fiber and nutrients and we drink lots of water to help push it through slowly and gradually, then our food is digested and as it's moving through our system those nutrients are gradually absorbed and then utilized
0: that was something you that was something you mentioned to me which i think is important is if you're increasing the fiber in your diet which often happens if you go to a plant-based uh, approach then you're going to need to drink more water and that sometimes that weakness that people feel is that they're drinking the same amount of water. They've got a lot more fiber in their diet and whoa, they need more water. And they're actually feeling some dehydration because they're not eating as as much water as they need. They're not drinking as much water as they need.
1: People who uh, often feel tired will reach for a caffeinated beverage before they will consider their own personal hydration. And so what happens is there's this cycle of going to sleep dehydrated and waking up in the morning further dehydrated because we sweat in our sleep. And then instead of drinking water, first thing, we drink a caffeinated beverage, which is a diuretic, which leaches the water from our bodies. And we we see that we're peeing, so we think, oh, I've got enough water in my system, but it's actually our body eliminating water that was already there, dehydrating us further. And then maybe we drink water during the day, but in the evening we might have a glass of wine or a beer. And alcohol is a diuretic, so that leaches more water from our bodies. So we're like this constant state of dehydration. And when we add more plant-based foods that have this fiber, and we're used to eating more animal products, which are void of fiber, then two things happen. We have a hard time adjusting to moving that fiber through our our GI tract but the other thing that happens is that when we are eating animal foods we have trained over many many years to uh, for our bodies to produce the enzymes necessary to break down that animal flesh if we were a cat an obligate carnivore we would have a very acidic inside but as as the human body we are more alkaline And the digestion, which starts in our mouth chewing and lands in our stomach, we need certain enzymes to kind of break down plant protein versus animal protein. And often what happens when we eat animal protein is we use up a lot of those enzymes trying to break down this very dense and, as you said, satisfying food. Um, Also, hamburger and salmon jerky is is umami bomb. I mean, it's like lots of umami. So of course you feel satisfied and it's filled you up, but nutrient density is very, very low. The hamburger doesn't really have anything except fat and protein and the salmon jerky might have some omega threes, but if you skip the middle fish and you skip the middle cow and you go directly to the plant source, then you get the omega threes, you get the calcium and you get all the other nutrients that help absorb those omega-3s, and those
0: calcium. So part of the difficulty of transition for some people is that you've kind of like got to retrain your digestive system. And there's the el- yes. there's the aspect of the d- digestive enzymes. And we also know the microbiome. You've got all this gut flora. You've got all these microorganisms in your belly that are essential to the digestion process. So when people, if you suddenly transition, you might get bloating and gas and digestion problems. But eventually if you do it in a more sane way, maybe a more gradual way, you can actually retrain your body so that you have a different microbiome and then you'll have the proper microorganisms for digesting more plants and more fiber and then you'll have the digestive enzymes you need. How long does that process take, do you think? And is there anything that we can do to kind of help that process along?
1: There's these fantastic things called digestive enzymes which our body already produces. um, But often when when i'm talking to someone who's really interested in in transitioning towards a primarily plant-based diet i will encourage them to go to uh, their natural food store and go to the supplement section and look for digestive enzymes and i realize that they're not accessible for everyone but if you have the opportunity to buy a bottle of 90 to 120 so capsules uh, vegetarian capsules with seven to nine digestive enzymes on the back on the label and certainly if you've already given up dairy uh, you don't have to find a a combo that includes lactase because you've already removed the lactose from your from your body and so maybe find one that has something else but there are some really great vegan formulas out there and I encourage people to, to split those that bottle up into two different bottles, one in your bag that you might have with you all of the time, and another that you would have at home. And every single time you eat anything for a month, it takes about a month to change any sort of habit. So maybe a month or two months to change to help encourage your body to get used to these other enzymes to get having getting used to having extra enzymes and what that will also do is reduce the amount of inflammation that you have in your body particularly if whatever you were eating before was causing inflammation in your body sometimes that can have a chronic long-term effect on your GI system and therefore your overall sense of well-being and so when you are breaking down the nutrient dense food in your belly really thoroughly before sending it through your GI tract, you are really bringing down the level of inflammation and irritation that may already be there and and existing from your previous diet that maybe was not as healthy.
0: What about uh, supplements in general? Um, there are some kind of basic supplements that are often recommended for, for vegans, and maybe they're not necessary, but they make it a little bit easier to kind of cover the bases of any nutrients you might be missing. I mean, I know people often recommend B vitamins. People often recommend vitamin D. Those are things that everybody can benefit from. What would be your recommendation in terms of the supplements that people might want to take?
1: Um, I would definitely recommend if you're not already taking a multivitamin daily that incorporates uh, vitamin D and vitamin B12, I would recommend getting uh, individual supplements for each of those. And some people have problems swallowing pills uh, or supplements. And so I really uh, encourage a very um, bioaccessible spray. Um, They make vitamin sprays You can actually even get B12 in a vape pen apparently now also. I don't know if that works for vitamin D, but I know the the B12 uh, supplement, which is something that our bodies absolutely need. And what's interesting about B12 is B12 grows on bacteria. And our bodies generate a certain amount of B12, but primarily we get plenty of B12 when we're eating animal products because there's so much bacteria in the animal industry that there isn't really any need to supplement necessarily. Although, because many omnivorous people may lack nutrients to help absorb the B12, lots of people that eat a standard American diet are deficient in B12. And BD is another, uh, vitamin D is another one that uh, you know we can, we can generate our own vitamin D through sun exposure. Uh, but certainly, um, the sun isn't always out. Uh, people are fair skinned. Uh, there's only so much time you can spend in the sun. Um, but there are so many foods too that are fortified in both vitamin D and vitamin B12. Um, certainly, uh, non-dairy milks are a great way to add a little vitamin D and B12 into your diet. Um, So that's another way to do it is through fortified foods. Also,
0: there's nutritional yeast, which is really yummy because it also adds the umami aspect and it's got a lot of protein in it.
1: Yes, I would say that the majority of of nutritional yeast out there is uh, supplemented um, I believe riboflavin, B12, and a few other uh, vitamins are added to nutritional yeast or inherently there.
0: Sabrina, what are some other recommendations that you have for people who may be transitioning to more vegan or more plant-based diet and are having some difficulties or struggling with it either on the level of satisfaction or their concerns about, you know, is this right for me or am I getting what I, what I need from my food?
1: So I grew up uh, eating a lot of seafood, I grew up on a sailboat. I spent a lot of time on the water. And so for me, giving up seafood was really hard. It was the last thing that I, that I opted to remove from my diet um, in my own journey. And what I've discovered is, is that because, uh, because the fish go out into the ocean, uh, salmon for example, is a keystone species goes out into the ocean, it eats lots of things that have sea like nutrients. And then it it goes back upstream to the place that it that it was born and it spawns and it falls apart and the, the bears come and the seagulls come and they eat it and then they go scat in the woods and those nutrients get into the soil and that's where our mushrooms grow. So what's really interesting is is that an oyster mushroom mimics an oyster. If you marinate it and you treat it like you would an oyster, you can often get a very similar texture, flavor profile, mouthfeel, depending on what you complement it with. Same thing with, with lobster mushrooms, which are grown here in the Pacific Northwest, or I should say grow here in Pacific Northwest because they are definitely something you have to go out into the woods and forage or buy dehydrated online. But they mimic lobster. And so if you're a huge lobster fan, uh, I encourage you to figure out how to get your hands on some lobster mushrooms. Um, Trumpet mushrooms has a very thick stalk. Uh, So if you're craving scallops, you can slice the stalk into scallop-shaped pieces, and then you can uh, dip them, oh, for example, in aquafaba, which is a new fantastic ingredient that you get free in your can of chickpeas. If you open a can of chickpeas and pour the water that's in the chickpea can into a jar, three tablespoons equals one egg, which means that it doesn't act like an egg as an egg itself, like a fried egg sandwich or like scrambled eggs. But what it does is it acts like an egg as a binding agent. So if you were looking for an egg in your brownies or in your banana bread or as something to to dip Uh, A vegetable in so that you can coat it in panko breadcrumbs and then fry it up in a pan uh, Three tablespoons of aquafaba meaning bean juice that's poured off from chickpeas Will be an egg for you. So that would be another substitution Chickpeas in in and of themselves are amazing little uh pea legume bean things in the sense that um There's lots of different ways that you can add different ingredients to chickpeas and receive a similar result that you would in an animal-based recipe. Yes, love hummus, but I get tired of hummus, but it's amazing how you can add uh, all of the ingredients that you would find in tuna salad uh, and create something that's very tuna salad-like by adding pickle relish and scallions or some red onion, celery, um, and a little bit of toasted nori, um, and that toasted nori, that seaweed flavor, gives the seafood flavor to the chickpea salad, which ends up kind of tasting more like tuna salad than, but without the tuna. What
0: are some other examples of substitution? Someone who's craving this might actually be able to get satisfied from something else that's plant-based.
1: Well, I think a, a lot of people really uh, are are because they're already struggling with the gluten issue and they're really missing um, pasta. And so I just wanted to uh, put a a plug in for kelp noodles. These are are noodles that are made entirely from kelp, uh, which is a sea vegetable. Um, They're they're mineral rich, they're low in carbohydrates, they're low in calories, if that's a concern for you. Uh, They're fat free, they're free of all allergens. Like you can't actually be allergic to kelp. Um, They have a very neutral taste Um, So they're sort of like um, tofu in the sense that they absorb up like a sponge the flavors of the things that you want to pair with them. So pesto sauce or a spicy peanut sauce, um, for example, could get mixed up with kelp noodles. And while just plain, they're very crunchy and cellulose-like. But the longer they sit with any sauce, be it alfredo sauce or pesto or that spicy peanut sauce, they more that they absorb up the liquid in the sauce and become more and more al dente like pasta like regular glutinous pasta Um, sort of like zucchini noodles which you can certainly make with a spiralizer but i just find that everyone really loves the kelp noodles um, they may not know initially what to do with them but you don't even have to cook them you just toss them with a sauce and certainly, there are already um, store-bought sauces that you can buy, but you can make your own, and they're just really fantastic. But most importantly, they're nutrient dense. They still, um, they keep align in alignment with that whole making every bite count nutritionally.
0: Sabrina, do you have one or two recipes that you want to share? I mean, I know one of my favorites is very simple, but for breakfast, I'll eat oatmeal. Or polenta, and I'll add a little bit of raisins. And then in the bowl, I'll have my pumpkin seeds. I might have some almonds, or I might have some coconut, shredded coconut, or I might have some chia. And that's a very sustainable way to start my day. What are some recipes that um, you wanna share with us?
1: Yes, I um, actually, great that you mentioned that. I love that you can take two tablespoons of chia seeds in a little jelly jar and maybe a, a, a tablespoon of hemp, shelled hemp seeds and add some, some mashed banana and a spoonful of almond butter or peanut butter and top it off with your favorite non-dairy milk and shake it up vigorously and, and put it in the fridge. And the next morning you have this amazing chia seed, pudding, banana, peanut butter concoction You can crumble some walnuts in there if you like. It's so delicious. And you can use any kind of fresh fruit. Um, You can add jam or jelly. You can um, put all kinds of different maple syrup. I've experimented with using leftover cereal uh, in the jar as well, like puffed kamut or puffed rice, uh, grape nuts, Uh, just really really great to kind of, as a way to kind of utilize what's left over in your fridge. Um, Another one of my favorite things, and right now I'm totally hooked on it, is Hungarian mushroom stew. So um, everybody who likes mushrooms and who really appreciates a a rich and thick and creamy kind of mushroom stew um, is really going to love yellow potatoes, any kind of mushroom, and leeks combined with coconut milk or coconut cream. A little bit of lemon pepper some salt and pepper and a tad of smoked paprika i have recently added some asparagus in with that kind of mixture and have gotten a very thick creamy umami rich the beauty of the yellow potatoes versus the russet ones are that the yellow potatoes really break down into mush and the leeks when you slice them and clean them in a a bowl of water and then drain off that water and put them in a pan with a little bit of olive oil and those diced potatoes they also break down into a very mild tasting onion mush that becomes really the heart of the mushroom stew and the coconut milk or coconut cream tops it off and makes it very creamy and you can have any amount of any of those ingredients and still make a fantastic soup.
0: What are some resources that you would point people to like their books or websites or places that you would suggest that people go if they're interested in uh, learning more about this and how to make their own transition to a more vegan or plant-based diet in a a sane and sustainable way?
1: Well, I certainly love Colleen Patrick-Goudreau's Compassionate Cooks and Joyful Vegan websites. She has a podcast called uh, Food for Thought, and um, it really covers a lot of topics, uh, not only about food preparation, but what to do in certain instances, how to talk to family and friends and loved ones about certain topics. Um, I find really a lot of the information that she shares in both of her podcasts as being very useful, particularly to first-time adventurers, shall we call them. Um, she also writes a number of books, um, color me vegan, the vegan table, uh, lots of cookbooks. Um, and, and, uh, I would, I would mention minimalist baker, uh, minimalistbaker.com is a, is a website where you can find pretty much any recipe veganized and, and usually gluten-free. In fact, I think always gluten-free, um, It's really a fantastic online resource for recipes uh, that I recommend.
0: Sabrina, we don't have a lot of time left. Give us the contact information if people want to get in touch with you and find out more about your work. And I know you also sometimes offer classes. And how can people get in touch with you?
1: Uh, You can find me at Lou S-A-B-B-Y-L-O-U at gmail.com. That's my, my email. Um, feel free to email me, and I'm uh, in the process of putting together a website, which will be sabbyloo.com.
0: Sabrina Louise, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Will.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Sabrina Louise. Sabrina is an educator of vegan cuisine, a food and water activist, and works for the Unitarian Universalist Ministry for Earth. She's based in Portland, Oregon, where she was one of the founding members of Rethinking Psychiatry. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is sponsored by The Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices. Host is Will Hall and producer is Nina Packabush. Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM and the Pacifica Network, and shows are archived online at madnessradio.net.